Hi, I'm David Taub, and welcome to the Parsha Rabbit Hole, where I find something weird in the weekly Torah portion and follow it all the way down until it gets even weirder. This week's rabbit hole eventually gets us to the topic of wizards, one very famous wizard in particular, but as always, we have to get there, so let's get started. In this week's Torah portion, Shemais, we start a whole new book of Chumash. Hooray! A lot happens in this week's Parsha, but we're going to focus on one tiny part of it. In the beginning of the Parsha, we hear about how the slavery of the Jews in Egypt began. This is ancient Egypt, and you, you are not free anymore. And then we learn the origin story of Moshe Rabbeinu, or Moses. And eventually we get to the story of the burning bush. God is revealed to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, and tells him that he's going to bring the Jewish people out of Egypt. Moshe is concerned that when he brings this news to the Jewish people, they won't believe him, and so Hashem gives him three signs to show them, miracles that he can do to prove that he's actually been sent by Hashem. And when Hashem gives him the first sign, we meet a sort of side character that follows us through the rest of Chumash and does some pretty incredible things, and this is the first time that character appears. Here's what it says in the Parsha. Hashem said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a stick. And that is how the Torah introduces us to the staff of Moses. Mata Moshe in Hebrew. A stick. Not just any stick. Hashem then tells Moshe to throw the stick on the ground and it turns into a snake. And he gives him two other signs that he can do, which he then repeats for the Jewish people. And he also does the snake thing again at the beginning of next week's Parsha. But that's not the end of the stick. As we know, that stick is famously used in Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea. Throughout Chumash, that stick is used in many other miracles, and eventually it's part of the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu isn't allowed to enter the land of Israel. Because he hits a rock with that stick when he was supposed to talk to it. So this stick has a long and illustrious career, and there were some things that I remembered about it that I knew were interesting, so I thought that this was a good place to start and see where we can get to. So if you want to know more about this very special stick, that's where this week's rabbit hole starts. Let's jump in. In addition to being referred to as Mata Moshe, the Staff of Moses, it's also called the Staff of God. Later on in the Parsha, Hashem tells Moshe to leave Midian and take his family and go back to Egypt. And it says that Moshe took the Staff of God with him. And it says that Yikach Moshe as Mata HaLekim and Moshe took the Staff of God in his hand. Okay, so this is definitely a special stick, but does it have special qualities? According to Sforno, no, it was just a regular stick. He says that this stick wasn't made from a particularly special type of wood or anything like that. It was just a regular stick, but it became special because Hashem allowed Moshe to perform these miracles with it. But there are a lot of other commentaries that say differently, and they cite various different midrashim, including this one. According to Midrash Rabbah, the staff was made of sapphire and weighed 40 saw. Now, if you're wondering what weight that converts to in modern units, I tried two different ways of converting it, and they both came out to around a thousand pounds. If anybody out there has a better idea of how much that would weigh, please let me know in the comments. The Midrash also tells us that when Hashem told Moshe that he was going to bring ten plagues upon the Egyptians, the city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Moshe Rabbeinu asked, how am I going to do that? And Hashem answered him by showing him the stick. And engraved on the stick was an acronym for the ten plagues. Datsach Adash Bachav, which you may recognize from the Seder. And Hashem said, that's the order that you're going to do it in. So, according to this, this stick was a very special stick. It was made of sapphire, it was super heavy, and it had an instruction manual for the ten plagues on it. There are other sources that mention other things being engraved on the stick. For example, the name of God. But we'll get to that later. Okay, so now what we have is, at least according to some sources, this stick was very physically unique. 
but it may also have had some unique abilities. When Hashem is giving Moshe these signs to perform for the Jewish people as proof, it says, If they don't believe you and they don't hear the voice of the first sign, then they'll hear the voice of the second sign. So there's a lot of discussion back and forth in various commentaries about what this means. What is koil ha'ois, the voice of the sign? Some commentaries say that this means that Moshe didn't actually perform these miracles in front of the Jewish people, he just told them about it. Which seems strange to me, because if the whole idea was to prove to the Jewish people that he actually spoke to God, then just telling them more amazing stuff that they didn't actually see happen, I don't understand how that would help. But there's a Midrash in Yalkut Shemini that I think clears everything up. It says that Reish Lakish said, what does it mean, the voice of the sign? It means that the stick talked and said, I was with Moshe and Midian, and I turned into a snake, and then I turned back into a stick. So according to this, it would seem that the Jewish people didn't see the stick turn into a snake, but they heard the stick talk about how it turned into a snake. Which is definitely very cool, and I'm wondering what would be more impressive to me if I saw it. A stick turning into a snake, or a stick telling me about having turned into a snake? Let me know in the comments which one you think would be more impressive. Okay, so it's very clear that this is a very talented stick. Hi, Stick Stickly here! In fact, it was so talented that Yankut Shemoni tells us a little bit later that when Moshe was reluctant about accepting Hashem's mission, Hashem told Moshe, Hey, if you don't want to do it, I'll just send the stick to do it instead. But I'd rather you, Moshe, have the merit. Now please just take a moment to imagine that alternate universe where Moshe Rabbeinu had not accepted the leadership of the Jewish people, and instead, a stick became our leader. Imagine that Judaism. That would be wild. Okay, so now we have a very heavy talking stick made of sapphire with the ten plagues and maybe some other stuff engraved on it. But where did this stick come from? In Perkeavis, it says that there were ten things that were created on the sixth day of creation, Erev Shabbos, at twilight. It's a cool list and I'm not going to go through all of them now, but what's relevant here is that one of them is the Staff of Moshe. So this stick has been around since almost the very beginning. In Perkidur Abeliezer, it echoes this and then gives us a more detailed chain of custody of who owned this stick and how it got into the hands of Moshe Rabbeinu. It says that Hashem gave the stick to Adam Harishan, Adam. Adam gave the stick to Chanoich, Chanoich gave it to Noach, Noah. Noach gave it to his son Shem, Shem gave it to Avram Avinu, Abraham, who gave it to his son Yitzchak, Isaac, who then gave it to his son Yaakov, or Jacob. Yaakov passed it down to Yosef, or Joseph, and after Yosef died, the Egyptians ransacked his house, and the stick ended up in the palace of Pharaoh. While the stick was in the palace, Yisrael saw it. Yisrael would eventually become Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law. And there are other midrashim that give us some background information on Yisrael, which is all very fascinating, and I'll probably get to it in a later rabbit hole. But for now, the relevant information is that before Yisrael's appearance in Chumash, when Moshe met him and married his daughter, Yisrael was an advisor to Pharaoh. So now back to Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer. It says Yisrael saw this stick and liked it and took it, and he stuck it in the ground in his garden, and nobody could get near it anymore. When Moshe went to Yisrael's house, he went to the garden and he saw this stick and the letters that were engraved on it. And he stretched out his hand and he pulled it out of the ground. And Yisrael was amazed and he said, This person will redeem the Jewish people from Egypt. And then he gave Moshe Rabbeinu his daughter's hand in marriage. Okay, so this stick was around since almost the very beginning, since the sixth day of creation. It was passed down from generation to generation. Every one of the Jewish patriarchs had it at one point, but eventually it landed up in Yisrael's backyard, and then Moshe Rabbeinu pulled it out of the ground. Yalkut Shemoni tells pretty much the same story, but fleshes out that last part a little bit. Here's what it says. 
Again, the staff landed up in Yusra's garden, and many men tried to pull it out of the ground to win Sipporah's hand in marriage, but they couldn't. Nobody could pull it out of the ground until Moshe Rabbeinu came. And when Yisra saw the staff in Moshe's hand, he gave him his daughter's hand in marriage. Okay, so if we put this together, what we have here is a story that there was a stick in the ground, nobody could get it out until Moshe Rabbeinu was able to remove this stick from the ground, and when Yisrael saw that, he declared, this person is destined to be the leader of the Jewish people. Now, I'm sure some of you out there are thinking this sounds familiar. The sword in the If any of you have ever heard the story of King Arthur and the sword in the stone, Excalibur, this may sound a little bit similar. In Arthurian legend, there was a sword that was stuck in a stone, and engraved on the sword it said, Whoever can pull this sword out of the stone will become the king. Though many tried for the sword with all their strength, none could move the sword nor stir it. And nobody could get the sword out of the stone until King Arthur did, and that's how he became king. So these stories sound a little bit similar. So it's worth noting that the full story of King Arthur, with all the elements that we know today, Merlin and Excalibur and the Sword and the Stone, was written in 1136 by Geoffrey of Monmouth. Now the character of King Arthur and some other elements of the story existed well before that, but it seems according to Wikipedia that the earliest references to King Arthur are around the 700s. But our story about Moshe Rabbeinu pulling the stick out of the ground is from Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which is based on the teachings of the Tana Rabbi Eliezer, who lived in the second century, hundreds of years before the first references to King Arthur started to pop up. So that got me wondering if maybe the sword in the stone legend was influenced by this story of Moshe Rabbeinu. So I did some digging, Moses, sword, stick, all of those different combinations of words, and I found one person on the internet who said that the Arthurian legend was based on this, but they didn't have any proof for it, they were just saying it. But I did find something else that was very interesting. This untitled manuscript, which is currently in the Library of the Vatican, was written in 1279 and tells the story of Melech Artus, or King Arthur. It is a medieval Hebrew translation of some of the stories of King Arthur. The author actually spends a great deal of time in his introduction giving reasons why it was okay for him to have written it and why it's good for people to read it. The author starts with the reason why he wrote it, and he says it's because he was going through some hard times and he started getting lost in his own thoughts of melancholy and he was afraid that he would fall into depression, which he says is worse than death, and therefore for his own mental health he translated these stories. And he gives some more defenses for that, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But his second reason for writing this is that he thinks it's worthwhile for people to read. He says that he feels that these stories will inspire teshuva, repentance. Okay, so Arthurian legend in Hebrew in a medieval manuscript, that's pretty cool. But I had some questions. First of all, I wondered, is this being presented as history, or is it just a story? And it seems pretty clear to me that whether or not the author thought this was true, it wasn't being presented as history. It was being presented as a good story. One of the author's defenses is that he references this Gemara that says that Rabbi Yechanan said that Rabbi Meir had 300 fox fables that he taught. And so the author or translator of Melech Artus says, this story is even better than fox fables. So it seems pretty clear to me that whether or not the author thought it actually happened, it was being presented as a powerful story. It also seems pretty clear that this story didn't make its way into Jewish tradition. I mean, it's not something that today Jewish people read, and it was sitting in the Library of the Vatican for hundreds of years until it was translated about a hundred years ago. And even the fact that Arthurian legend exists in a Jewish text doesn't say much. 
I mean, there's a copy of Yertle the Turtle in the central Chabad library in 770. That doesn't make it part of Jewish tradition. But once I had this text and I started looking at the names of the characters in Hebrew, I decided to start searching for them in Jewish sources. I searched for Artis, not mentioned anywhere else. I searched for Morgana, she's not mentioned anywhere. And then I searched for Merlin. I'm Merlin, the electronic wizard, challenging you to six computer games. And bingo, I got a hit in one of my favorite Svarim, Seder Hadaris. Seder Hadaris is a Jewish history book written in the 1700s. It's mostly a compilation of various different texts written around the 1500s, and it goes from the very first day of creation pretty much all the way until it was written. And it pulls together all of the Midrashim and all of the earlier Jewish history works and puts everything in order. And it's amazing, and I love it. So I was very excited to find a reference to Merlin. This is what it says in Seder Adairis. In the entry for the Hebrew year 4127, or 367 CE, it says in the name of an earlier work, Shalshelis HaKabbalah, that I saw it written that the Sutton enclosed himself in the form of a man and had a child with a human woman, and that child was called Merlin, and he was a Chacham Gadol, a great scholar or wise man. Seder Adairis then brings another source with a similar story, but with slightly different details, and from about a hundred years later. It says, in the days of Leo I, who was an emperor of the Byzantine Empire, there was a Chachem Gadol, a great wise man in England, named Merlon. And it is said that he was the son of a gremlin, and his mother was a princess who became a nun, and that he wrote many books. And then it dates the story by saying that Leo I died in 476 CE. So now we see from this two traditional Jewish sources that mention the existence of Merlin. Now, <clears throat> my name is Merlin. That is very exciting to me. One more interesting thing, on the Wikipedia entry for Merlin, it says that the character was a composite of various different earlier personalities, most of which seem to have lived right around the same time as the Merlins mentioned in Seder Adairis. Okay, so so far this rabbit hole has given us a talking stick and the mention of Merlin in Jewish history texts. I am Merlin, the most powerful magician in the whole world. So that's definitely a win, but we're not done yet. I've got a couple more things about the stick that I want to share with you. We mentioned earlier the Midrash that said that the ten plagues were engraved on the stick, and I said that there's other sources that mention other things that were engraved on it. Later on in Chumash, a few parshas down the line, we get to the story of Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea. And there, Targum Yenison, which is an Aramaic translation of Chumash, but also includes a lot of commentary, gives us a full rundown of everything that was engraved on the stick. This is what it says there. Engraved upon the stick was the name of Hashem, the ten plagues, the three patriarchs, the six matriarchs, and the twelve tribes of Israel. So first of all, that's a lot of stuff to be engraved on that stick. But the more interesting thing that jumps out to me, and maybe it jumped out to you, is the six matriarchs. If I were to ask you who knows four, I'm sure you would tell me I know four. Four are the mothers, right? Four. That's because usually when we talk about the matriarchs, the mothers of the Jewish people, we only include Sarah, Rivka, Leah, and Rachel. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. The latter two, Leah and Rachel, were the wives of Yaakov, but Yaakov also had two other wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, who were the mothers of the tribes of Dun, Naphtali, Gud, and Usher, which in English are Dun, Naphtali, Gud, and Usher. I bet you're glad I translated that for you. But the point is, usually we don't count Bilhah and Zilpah. In the Gemara in Brachis, it says there are three people who are called Avais, patriarchs, 
and that's Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And we don't refer to other people, for example, Yaakov Avinu's sons, the Shvatim, as Aves. There are ancestors, but they're not counted as the Aves. And so too, it says that there are four people who are called the matriarchs, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. And the Gemara clarifies why are only these people called the patriarchs and the matriarchs. It offers one possibility, because not everybody is descended from each of the tribes of Israel, we can't all call them our fathers. But it rejects that, because then we shouldn't all call Rachel and Leah our mothers either. Because some of us are descended from Rachel and some of us are descended from Leah. And so it says it's not a technical issue of who's descended from who, it's about significance and importance. These people are significant enough to be called Aves and Neimais, and the other people aren't. So it's interesting then that the six mothers, all six of them, including Bilhah and Zilpah, were engraved on the staff. So I actually had a lot more sources about this stick that I wanted to share with you, but it's already getting super long, so I had to cut it down. But one of the things I was thinking about is, on the one hand, we get this pedigree of the stick, that it belonged to Adam Harishan, and then it belonged to the Aves, and then it belonged to Moshe Rabbeinu. There are other sources that say eventually this same stick will be used by Mashiach. And so in this stick, we see this idea of tradition, something that has belonged to everybody and stays the same and doesn't change. But on the other hand, it has been in different hands and different people have used it. Yaakov used it in one way, Moshe used it in a different way, Aaron used it in a different way. Aaron, pass down my staff before Pharaoh. So I was thinking about the two sides of this stick, that on the one hand it represents unchanging tradition, and on the other hand it also represents the power of an individual. How it can do different things when used by different people. And when I was searching around for something that kind of brought those ideas together, I found a sikhif from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that I thought was really cool. So he explains that the reason why the six matriarchs are written on this stick is the same reason that the twelve shvatim are written on the stick. Because he says that this stick represents the avoider, the service of an individual in contrast to an Avaida Klolis, a general Avaida, something that is of more global and universal importance. He says you might think that this type of individualized, personal, specific type of service to God is lower. It's not as big and grand and important as something which is relevant to everybody. And even quotes the Gemara that seems to suggest that Avais and Imais, the patriarchs and matriarchs, which are the ancestors of us all, are considered more important. But he says from this stick we can learn that individualized service of Hashem is also important. Because this stick had engraved on it the three patriarchs and all six matriarchs and all of the twelve Shvatim and even had the twelve plagues of Egypt, which are a very specific type of service because it was something that was only relevant to solving a particular problem. And on that same stick was also engraved the name of Hashem, specifically the name of Hashem, the one that represents God's essence. And since an essential thing can't be broken up into pieces, if you grasp a piece of an essence, you're grasping the entire thing. So there is no such thing as a path in Judaism which is too personal and too specific. Because your personal specific path is part of a whole that can't be broken into pieces. Alright, that's it. That's the rabbit hole. As I said, there's a lot more that I found that I couldn't include in this video, and I know that there's a lot more that I didn't find, so please, if you find it, share it with me in the comments. Thank you for following me down the rabbit hole. If you find a stick down here, that's mine. I got it from my father, who in turn got it from his father, who in turn got it from a store in southern Illinois.